Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. This is episode 31. So today we're doing part two of our sub-series about Can Technology Save Us? If you remember, in the first episode of this series, we talked about electricity and the pros and cons of renewables that are currently available for electricity and why those renewables probably are not going to save us. Yeah, these conversations feel especially important because when you go back to the first handful of episodes in which you were just teaching me about collapse, you helped me see right from the beginning that we are in an energy crisis. What we're doing right now is not sustainable. And if I remember right, it's for a few reasons. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but part of it is just the fact that our energy consumption keeps going up and it's increasing at a really dramatic rate. And that just keeps accelerating as these underdeveloped nations become more developed. And not only that, but also as our population grows. We're using more and more and more energy while at the same time using up fossil fuels. And we are so highly dependent on fossil fuels. Most of what we talked about previously was oil. And I remember you saying that there's not that big of a concern of us just running out completely of fossil fuels, at least not for a long, long time. But the problem is that it gets more and more difficult to make it worth it for us to extract all that oil. You taught me about E-R-O-E-I, right? Energy return on energy investment. I remember you sharing with me that years ago, back when we were first kind of really getting into oil, it was something like one barrel of oil in energy that it took us to get 100 barrels of oil out of the ground. And that in more recent years, 
that's down to like one barrel of energy for every 10 barrels or less that we get out of the ground. And that we've had to move away from conventional oil, you know, to these other ones that are even less profitable. And we're kind of starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel while at the same time needing more and more energy. So with all that said, we also did our review on Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And I remember from the book that although he talked about nuclear energy very little, that seemed to me to be the topic that he was most optimistic about. Yeah, in his book, he talks a bit about solar and wind. And in our episode about that, we discussed how those are both industries that are growing quickly, but there is a lot of limits to them. For example, intermittency. The sun is not always shining. The wind is not always blowing. And that creates this huge problem with being able to distribute the energy at the right times of day, the right months of the year. You have to have a bunch of storage capacity. So massive batteries, which are a huge expense, don't have super long lifespans. And just the fact that in order to create solar panels, wind turbines, it takes a lot of resources, as well as the burning of fossil fuels in order to make it happen. So like you had just mentioned, nuclear is of major interest to anyone serious about overcoming our energy deficits. And so the topic of today's episode is on nuclear fission. Now, I have to throw out there that this episode was going to be on nuclear fission and we were going to talk about nuclear fusion, but I screwed up big time and miscommunicated with Kellen about which part I was going to take and which part he was going to take. And so we ended up both doing the same research on nuclear fission. So that being said, in the future, we will do an episode on nuclear fusion and the prospects for that in the future and why that may or may not ever happen. But for this episode, we're going to stick to the nuclear technology that we currently have and again, pose the question about whether or not it can save us. Personally, I'm kind of glad that we both did research on nuclear fission because as much time as I spent trying to wrap my head around it, there's a lot to learn there. And I feel like between what you learned and what I learned, we'll be able to paint a more accurate and complete picture. You mentioned nuclear fission and nuclear fusion and that we're going to focus on fission. And just to reiterate what you were kind of alluding to, nuclear fusion is something that we haven't really figured out yet. When we talk about nuclear energy and all the nuclear reactors that exist right now, those are nuclear fission. And I know we'll get into the details of fission, but we're not really trying to compare and contrast and say which one's better, fission or fusion, because fusion is something that's not even an existing technology. They're working on it, but they've been working on it for decades. So with that, let's talk about the technology that we do have, and I think we'll get into what the implications are. Is nuclear energy something that can save us? And on that note, Kellen and I are obviously not nuclear physicists. We're not experts in this field at all. And so there are going to be people listening to this who maybe have spent more time in the field, have done more research on it. The purposes of this episode is not to explain the science necessarily behind it, besides a very brief overview, but more about the practicality of using nuclear as an energy source. So simply put, in nuclear fission, you take an unstable atom, which usually comes from uranium or plutonium, and essentially you blast it with a neutron which is basically adding another neutron to the atom's nucleus, which basically makes that atom so unstable that it splits into two more stable atoms. And in that process of splitting the atom in two, it creates a ton of energy. And so scientists, when researching this in the late 30s and early 40s, found that during fission, the atom splitting actually creates three new neutrons. So 
in a controlled environment, you can create a chain reaction where the neutrons that are created from that initial fission can then create additional fission in other atoms. So if in the first case we were blasting an atom with a neutron and splitting it, and that creates more neutrons, those neutrons go and split other atoms. So when that process is contained in a nuclear reactor and controlled, you get usable nuclear energy. When it's not contained in a reactor, you get explosions like those of an atomic bomb. To me, as I've been diving into this topic, I've been absolutely intrigued. It's fascinating to me that on an atomic level, when you get down to the very smallest basic building blocks of everything that exists, something that is so microscopic contains that much energy kind of waiting to be released. And as I looked into it, there's a few different elements that can be used for that nuclear fuel. I think the process that you were describing that results in three neutrons kind of being expelled to start a chain reaction is uranium-235. But it's really interesting to me because elements have this certain binding energy that keeps the nucleus together. And one explanation I saw is you can picture like a rubber band or a few rubber bands that are holding the nucleus together. There's not something physically there that's doing it. It's just energy. But just like when you burst a rubber band, a lot of energy is instantly expelled. The same thing happens when, like you said, that element absorbs a neutron, becomes very unstable, splits into a couple of different elements, and all this energy is produced. And I had heard my whole life this concept of like E equals MC squared. You always hear that, but I never knew what it meant. But it's basically that mass and energy are interchangeable, which is such a fascinating concept. It's so counterintuitive. Apparently, that equation, E equals MC squared, is kind of the basis for this whole principle. In an element, if you take all of the neutrons and their individual weights, that actually ends up being more than when you combine all those together in the nucleus of an element. And you might think, where did that weight go? Or where did that mass go? And it's actually the energy, that binding energy, that is holding the nucleus together. So not that we need to get super deep into it, and we probably couldn't anyways, because like you said, we're not experts. But crazy to me, first of all, that anyone was ever able to figure this out in the first place. And then to think that you can take a material, do something to it, and have it create that much energy is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's crazy. And that was a lot of really smart person talk, and I totally believe everything that you just said, though I have to admit I probably didn't understand all of it. My question is, how does that energy get harnessed and basically converted into an energy that we can use as electricity, for example. So we talked about how it needs to be done in a controlled environment. Right? If you start this nuclear reaction and it goes unchecked, that's clearly going to be a disaster. The way they do it, again, getting just a little bit technical to start, they take uranium dioxide powder and they compact it into these little pellets and they put it through really high temperatures to produce these ceramic nuclear fuel pellets. And then they take what used to be these stainless steel tubes. Now they use zirconium alloy, but basically metal tubes. And they fill it with these nuclear fuel pellets. And those all get put into this reactor core. But then they have to have these control rods. And they're literally these rods made out of certain elements, boron, cadmium, silver, indium, that are capable of absorbing a lot of neutrons without themselves fissioning. So like you said, when that first atom splits, it shoots out a few neutrons that go split other atoms. You have to have something intervene to absorb all those neutrons that are bouncing around. 
Right. So you're saying you have that so that basically you don't get this exponential growth of fission that would be impossible to control. That's exactly right. And at the same time, there has to be a cooling process to control just all the heat that's being produced. But long story short, this nuclear reaction is created. That produces a ton of heat, which heats up a bunch of water, turns it into steam, that turns the turbines, and that creates the electricity. And I'll just mention that that's the general idea behind it. There are different types of reactors, and the process varies a bit. Some use a different moderator, and we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit later. If you research it, you'll hear things around pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors. There's ones called CANDU, but that's C-A-N-D-U. And the methods vary, some of the materials vary, the cooling and the moderating varies, but the general idea is you create a nuclear reaction that produces a lot of heat to make the steam to turn the turbines. So in a lot of ways, nuclear is awesome. I mean, not only is the science amazing and so cool that they've been able to find a way to capture that much energy, but there's also a lot of benefits to using nuclear over fossil fuels and even some renewables. You know, compared to fossil fuels, nuclear energy hardly releases any greenhouse gases. For an example, coal releases 888 tons of CO2 per gigawatt hour of energy produced, whereas nuclear releases about 29 tons. So that's around 3% as much. And even when it comes to renewable sources, nuclear still emits around the same or in some cases even less greenhouse gases than renewables. We talked earlier about solar and wind, which can be very intermittent, and how unsustainable that is because of the need for batteries and because you have to create a whole bunch more, for example, solar panels to be able to create excess energy in the sunny times to then be able to store when the sun isn't shining. Whereas with nuclear, it doesn't have that same problem. You know, a given reactor can run for a year straight with no interruptions. Also, nuclear plants are pretty cheap to run, not to build, and we'll get to that in a second. But when it comes to actually running and creating the energy once it's already been built, it's relatively cheap. So as an example for that, it's been estimated that even factoring in the costs of managing the radioactive waste and disposal, nuclear plants cost somewhere around one-third to one-fifth of a coal plant and 20 to 25% of a gas combined cycle plant. So in that regard, they're relatively cheap. When you mention those as pros, those are significant pros, like really big benefits of going with nuclear. In addition to what you mentioned, NASA did a study in 2013, and they estimated that between 1971 and 2009, 1.8 million lives had been saved by us using nuclear to the small degree that we are. Part of that is just because there are thousands of deaths that happen in coal mining. And the other part of that is all the deaths that can be tied right back to the pollution as a result of using coal. So we hear all the time about these handful of scary catastrophes that have happened with nuclear energy. But when you take a step back, even just directly, it is much less deadly than these other sources of energy. In fact, it has the lowest death rate when measured in death per energy unit produced. So that's coming from NASA. And maybe it goes without saying, but another pro with nuclear is that there is so much potential technology that we're just starting to understand. With fossil fuels, we can make marginal gains in our technology. But with nuclear, like we mentioned with fusion, if we can really figure that out, which they are working on it, that would be 200 times more efficient than what nuclear fission is providing us currently. And nuclear fission is way more efficient 
than the fossil fuels that we're using currently. You think of what you can get out of a pound of uranium compared to what you can get out of a pound of coal or gasoline or whatever else, and there's so much more potential energy available to us there. Man, just talking about nuclear and all the pros of nuclear makes me feel like we've done it. We've found the solution to our energy problems, right? And so then the question comes up, how much of our energy consumption right now comes from nuclear. So in the US, around 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear, and worldwide it's around 10%. So of all the electricity being consumed in the world, 10% of that comes from nuclear power. Some countries, though, use it much more. So France, for example, is at 75% of their electricity coming from nuclear fission. Now, it's important to keep in mind that that's just electricity. And in our earlier episode, we talked about electricity only really amounting to about a fifth of all energy consumption. So when it comes to all energy consumption, only about 4% globally is from nuclear plants. And so that begs the question, with seemingly so much potential, and with some countries showing that they've been able to use it, again, France at 75%, why does it make up such a small percentage of our overall energy consumption? And why is France projected to lower its electricity production from nuclear, from that 75% down to 50%. You would think, you know, shouldn't we be adding nuclear, not taking it away? Yeah, based on everything that you talked about, it might seem like a no-brainer to go all in on nuclear and to make that a big focus in the coming years. But as with everything, there is a downside. So I'll mention a few of the cons that I found while doing research. One of them is just nuclear weapons. There's a really direct correlation between nuclear reactors that get built and nuclear weapons that get built. At one point in the 70s, the big nuclear powers were sharing their technology, their nuclear technology, with all these other countries. But it usually resulted in those countries making weapons. And it's hard to tell if somebody is making nuclear weapons when they have a nuclear power plant. But some say that you can't really create nuclear weapons without nuclear reactor technology. And so I thought it was really interesting One of the sources that I was looking at said the road to deadly nuclear weapons is always paved with peaceful reactors. But in my opinion, you can't blame any country for wanting to have nuclear weapons. Going back to our episode last week about firearms, the reason somebody wants to get a gun in their home is probably to protect themselves from other people that have guns. Yeah, you know, you think of countries like Iran, for example, that have nuclear technologies, power plants, which gives them the technical ability to start working on nuclear weapons. Same case with North Korea, and it makes it really hard to monitor and know what's happening. And like you said, if I were one of those countries, I would want to have nuclear weapons as well when all my enemies have them. That being said, I don't think any of us really benefit wherever we are in the world from more nuclear weapons being made and more countries having access to them. Nuclear proliferation is a danger to everyone. Maybe we'll talk in a future episode about potential for nuclear conflicts from weapons, but I think for now it's enough to say that the more access there is to nuclear weapons, and especially by more unstable governments and states, the more risk there is for an accident or for aggressive behavior to cause a chain reaction that would no doubt be devastating. Agreed. Another really notable con of nuclear energy is nuclear waste. The process of creating nuclear energy creates radioactive material and extremely dangerous chemical elements like plutonium, and supposedly a milligram of plutonium will kill you. 
right? It's extremely poisonous. And we can try to repurpose or reprocess nuclear waste and use the plutonium as fuel, but there's some issues and complications there. And we just really haven't figured out nuclear waste storage. It can take tens of thousands of years to lose its harmfulness. So that alone might be the biggest con to nuclear energy. Yeah, long after the nuclear power plant itself is gone, you know, these plants have a life of somewhere between 40 and 60 years, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But for tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years, after that plant has long been abandoned or destroyed, you still have to very carefully handle and store that radioactive material. When you consider how much of this waste is already out there, and how much there is talk about it, and how much worry there is about it, and then you consider that only 4% of our energy comes from nuclear, imagine how big of an issue it would become if we doubled the amount of nuclear that we have, or tripled, or quadrupled, or multiplied it by 25 in order to go completely nuclear. You know, right now, we're looking at this story coming out of Japan, where they just announced that they're going to essentially dump their wastewater into the ocean, a million gallons of it, because they've run out of space. Now, they claim that they are going to treat it, they're going to make it not harmful, and that they'll be releasing it into the ocean over decades. But the cost for that and the margin of error for grave mistakes, you know, that's extremely dangerous still to our oceans and to all life on Earth. Again, as we talk about expanding nuclear into new governments and new states, it increases the chances the waste is not going to be properly stored. It increases the chances for an accident. It increases the chances, especially in a capitalist structure where it might be cheaper to take a shortcut and do something with that waste that isn't appropriate, but that ends up doing a lot of harm to a lot of people or to ecosystems. With that being said, nuclear has very strict rules and regulations in place to be very careful and to make sure that nothing is happening. But we know that rules are broken, shortcuts are still taken, and there's still a lot of room for error. Yeah, and to argue against the con of nuclear waste just a little bit, you know, the point has been brought up in other places that if we have to choose between basically pumping tons of pollutants and toxins and poison into the air or burying it deep in the ground, it might make more sense to go with nuclear instead of fossil fuels. You know, supposedly it's something like 65 gigatons of CO2 emissions have not been pumped into the atmosphere because of the nuclear energy that we're using. Yeah, and it's interesting that you talk about there's these arguments against that con. You know, there are a lot of arguments to be made about how nuclear waste and the storage of it could be much safer. And like you said, the pollutants and the CO2 and the warming of the earth that we're causing through fossil fuels. And I think that leads to another con of nuclear, which is just the public perception of it. People are scared of it. They hear all these horror stories about waste and about radioactive material. And pop culture always shows these dramatic and tragic things coming from radioactive materials and also from accidents that have happened in the past regarding meltdowns. You know, one source that I read mentioned that 1.5% of all plants ever built have had some degree of meltdown, whether that's catastrophic or damaging to a lower degree. Now, I don't know where that 1.5 number necessarily comes from. I only saw it from one source. But it's those types of numbers and those types of ideas that can cause a lot of public perception. Now, obviously, the meltdowns that have happened have been huge deals and caused a lot of death and a lot of problems and a lot of financial costs. And the idea that they could continue happening, even though they may be rare, they are very large in scale and are certainly a risk associated with increasing the amount of nuclear that is available. 
I'm glad he called out the public perception. Because what I mentioned before about how supposedly nuclear energy has the lowest death rate when measured in death per energy unit produced, that includes these big scary disasters that have happened. Supposedly over the last 60 years, there have been seven major disasters, and four of those were mostly contained. Three of them didn't work out so well. And the one that I feel like I've heard the most about is Chernobyl. And that's probably because Chernobyl directly resulted in the most deaths. You know, we mentioned before that nuclear fission, in order to be controlled, needs a moderator. And they found that water actually is one of the best moderators, which is convenient because the same water that you want to heat up to create the steam can be used as a moderator in the fission process. But in Chernobyl, they used graphite blocks as a moderator. And the problem with graphite is that it burns, and when you've got it contained in concrete, it explodes. And so with Chernobyl, there's this meltdown, massive explosion, and not only the deaths that occurred immediately, but all the after effects were horrible. And even still, Chernobyl isn't necessarily considered a safe place to be. It takes years and years for the harmfulness of what was released to die down. Now, one that's more recent was in Fukushima. That was in 2011. And that one's interesting because they used a boiling water reactor and they had a way of providing coolant and a backup way and a backup of a backup. But then they got hit with a tsunami, which almost submerged the entire power plant and cut off all sources of power. So the cooling system stopped and there was a meltdown of three of the plant's reactor cores. With that one, they were able to evacuate everyone really quickly. It really wasn't as damaging, at least from a casualty standpoint. But for weeks, they were spraying it all down with fire hoses, trying to keep water on it so that it wouldn't produce open flames that would kick all of that radioactive material into the air. And as you're spraying all this water on it, it's not easy to contain all that water, right? They did the best that they could, but it's draining off and making its way into the groundwater and out into the ocean. So that one was crazy and and extremely expensive and has all sorts of lasting negative impacts, but was a totally different situation than what took place in Chernobyl. Yeah, I read somewhere that the financial cost of that cleanup was somewhere between 460 and 660 billion dollars, which is monumental. And it's also interesting that that one was caused by a natural disaster, which, of course, as we know, with climate change, we're going to be experiencing a lot more of. So to think about increasing the amount of nuclear plants and having an increase in natural disasters, it seems like there's a much higher likelihood of increasing the possibilities of these types of accidents happening. And what's interesting to me is that with Chernobyl and Fukushima, and one we haven't mentioned yet, which is Three Mile Island, by the way, that one was back in 1979. That one almost became a really big issue, but they were able to prevent it just in time. Anyways, these happened in different countries with different types of reactors decades apart. And so you would think, like, we have this disaster, we learn from our mistake, we figure out how to make sure no disasters happen. But as much as we try, these things keep happening. And like you said, there's potential that no matter how many backups we put in place and how many safety protocols there are, that we're never going to be able to prevent all of these disasters. Yeah, a lot of proponents of nuclear say that, you know, there's all these new safety features coming out. There's these new methods, new ideas around how to make it safer. And that very well may be. 
And there's no doubt that over time, as we continue to refine the process, that we can make it safer and safer. But most of these new ideas are still unproven, untested, and there is a long lead time for these types of new technologies to be proven and to be put into place. So I don't doubt our ability to create safer nuclear. What I do doubt is our ability to create safer nuclear in a time frame that makes sense with the urgency with which we need to solve this problem. Yeah, the new technologies that could be developed, like you said, take a long time to develop and to deploy. But we also face this other issue. Supposedly, almost half of all the nuclear plants that exist were built back in like the 70s and 80s. And they're reaching a point now where nations are having to decide, are we going to put in the monumental cost of updating these old reactors? Or do we try and replace those with newer, more efficient reactors? In either case, it's extremely expensive. Yeah, earlier we mentioned France and the fact that 75% of their electricity is powered by nuclear, but that that is projected to decrease to 50%. And the reason for that is primarily what you've just mentioned. You know, they invested heavily in nuclear in the 70s. And now that those nuclear plants are getting old, they're kind of at the end of their life, they're starting to decommission them. And they're having to decide, are we going to foot the cost for constructing new ones, or are we just going to switch to to renewables? And in France's case, they are opting to switch many of them over to renewable sources of energy like solar and wind. When we talk about costs for construction, to me, this is one of the biggest issues that nuclear faces, because just on an economic scale, it doesn't necessarily make sense. And many nuclear plants are subsidied by governments because they can't stay afloat on their own. So just for perspective, a natural gas power plant that you could build for between one and one and a half billion dollars would cost between six and nine billion dollars for nuclear. Natural gas facilities are about 16% the construction cost of nuclear facilities. So if you're a government and you're trying to decide, do we invest in nuclear because it's clean, or do we use natural gas because it's cheap and plentiful right now, you're probably more likely to go with the natural gas from a financial standpoint. Coal plants are about half the cost of nuclear. Depending on the size of the plants, we're talking about anywhere from between $5 billion and 50 to $80 billion needed in order for the construction. And when you consider that these things are only lasting somewhere between 40 and 60 years, the annualized cost, despite the running cost being low, is very high when you compare it to other sources of energy. So another huge obstacle that nuclear faces is the amount of time that it takes to get a plant up and running. You know, when you talk about solar or wind or natural gas, you're usually talking somewhere between two to three to maybe five years to get that plant from project phase to operating. But in the case of nuclear, the average is around 15 years. So a plant that was being started today would not be ready until the year 2035. So as nations are planning on how they want to go green, as it were, they have to face that question because over the course of those 15 years that you're building that nuclear power plant, you're continuing to emit fossil fuels where you could cut 10 to 13 years off of that, that maybe you're using wind or solar instead. And, you know, I've heard it said that in order to get down to the goals set for near zero emissions by 2050, we'd have to be opening a new power plant every day until 2050 throughout the world. And all of the downsides to nuclear that we've just mentioned is one of the big reasons that the International Atomic Energy Agencies, that's the IAEA, has a projection that global nuclear generating capacity won't even quite double 
by 2050. So in the next 30 years, even though we're currently only powering 4% of our world with nuclear, over those 30 years, we won't even quite double the amount of generating capacity that we have now. And while it's great that it's increasing, the rate at which our energy requirements are also increasing almost seems to offset that growth to a point where nuclear looks like it's pretty stagnant. And in our last conversations around can technology save us and talking about electricity and the use of renewables and why they weren't completely feasible and now talking about nuclear and the projections and why nuclear may not be feasible, it is really hard to see if not renewables, if not nuclear, then what? And really all we're left with at that point is fossil fuels, which we know, like you said earlier, we're not running out of. But the EROEI is becoming so low that we're quickly approaching a point in which powering our world may become uneconomical and unfeasible. So we've mentioned a lot of cons, and I don't think we've even touched on the fact that uranium mining is dangerous. Just the mining process can produce lung cancer. Something like 10 or 12 percent of uranium miners die, at least according to one study. So if we take a step back, we talked about how awesome nuclear is. Like there's so much potential energy there. And I can see why, you know, Bill Gates in his book and others out there really advocate for increasing the amount of energy that we get from nuclear. You know, the few accidents that have happened have been absolutely terrible, but in the grand scale really haven't resulted in that much damage compared to fossil fuels. We talked about the waste and how nuclear waste is a big concern, but there are ways to do it safely, and it might be better to have our toxins and poisons buried deep in the ground than pumped into the air. But then when you talk about what you just mentioned of just how much it costs, you know, it's so expensive to build these nuclear power plants. It's expensive to maintain them. They don't last that long. And like you said, it takes a really long time to build them, during which time you could have been getting energy from other sources. I initially had all this hope in nuclear, like maybe it really can be what gets us to zero emissions and clean energy. And yet it doesn't look like we're trending that way. And now I can see why. So if we globally are requiring so much more energy and nothing that we've talked about so far seems like it can get us there, you know, maybe there will be some miraculous breakthrough with nuclear fusion. And not only that just that we'll be able to do it, but that we'll be able to do it cheap enough that it's feasible. But I'm not super hopeful because a lot of brilliant minds have been working on it for decades and haven't really made that much progress. So for you, Corey, where does this leave you? What do you think this means for us? If nothing can save us, what do you think the best path is to at least mitigate the damage or slow it down? So our issue is growth. And not just that we're currently growing, but that we've grown to the size and consumption levels that we're currently at. And this is kind of the catch-22 of collapse. And that is that in order to make it, we have to stop emitting so many fossil fuels. We have to have enough energy to keep our systems going. And yet the only way to do that is to have degrowth. It is to stop consuming as much energy as we are consuming. But the only way to do that is to collapse. So it's almost like the only way to prevent collapse is to collapse. And there's a bit of nuance there. One type of collapse would mean to do it intentionally. It would mitigate the severity. Whereas if we allow ourselves to surge forward until collapse happens by force or naturally, it's going to be much worse. It's going to be much more dramatic. And in my opinion, much more thorough, which is, you know, why I go all the way back to our very first conversations, you know, episode one, where I said, I don't think we can get out of this because one way or the other, we collapse. 
obviously, you know, I worry because I don't think humanity has what it takes to consciously or purposely degrow. And I want to make it clear that when I talk about degrowth, I'm not talking about population size. I'm talking about the amount of energy consumed. It is the wealthiest nations and the wealthiest people in those nations that do the vast amount of energy consumption and emissions. You know, I read somewhere today that 5% of the global population emits 37% of the greenhouse gases. And it seems like we could do an incredible amount of mitigation right up front by limiting that, by pulling those 5% of people down to the level of the other 95%, and then probably pulling the whole 95% down more as well. But our global systems, our economic systems, greed and power dynamics are simply not going to allow for that to happen. The last thing I'll say to answer that question is that in earlier episodes, we talked about our financial system. We talked about our economic systems and how growth is required in order to survive. Without that continual growth, in order to keep financial systems going, in order to keep economic systems going, the system does collapse. We also talked about how energy is required in order for that growth to be maintained and to happen. So at the very base of everything that we've talked about, Our societies are reliant 100% on continued access to cheap and plentiful energy. And lowering the amount of energy required is simultaneously going to cause the collapse of those systems in the first place. That gives me a lot to think about. And it makes sense, you know, that kind of paradox that we would need to collapse in order to prevent collapse. I think there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of things in life where if you take a little bit of pain now, it's going to prevent a greater amount of pain in the future. But I think you're right. I don't think people are going to do it out of just intrinsic motivation to help future generations or even to help themselves decades from now. You talk about that top 5% that's consuming such a big portion of the energy. And if you've got all that wealth, there really isn't much of an incentive to do anything other than live an extremely luxurious life. So I know we plan to talk about other technologies in the future, what hope those provide or don't provide. When it comes to nuclear fission and our current nuclear technology, I think it's safe to say we can't depend on that to save us. But as we sprinkle this kind of mini series of episodes in with the rest of our episodes, I'm excited to take this discussion a step further. We really appreciate those who leave a comment, who reach out to us and give us feedback, and who support us on Patreon. If you feel so inclined, we invite you to support us in one of those ways so that we can keep producing meaningful content. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.